you have a Bible, I'm going to finish up Genesis 13 tonight. I want to look at something else here in this little story of Abraham and Lot. So we're back in Genesis 13 and beginning in verse 5, and it says this, And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If you will take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. And then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. And Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent towards Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for I will give it to thee. And then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. The title of the message tonight is, Are You at a Crossroads? So many times you'll hear people say, I've been brought to a crossroads in my life. I have to make a decision that's going to affect my life for a long time to come. And the paths that are before me that I can choose, they both depending on which one I take, are going to have totally different outcomes. And the choice isn't easy. How many times have you been there? How many times do you have people say that? And you get this picture where here is somebody, they've come to this crossroads, to this point, and they're looking down that path, and they see where that path, once they start going and keep going on down that path, they see where that's going to take them to. And then they stand there at that crossroads, they see that path, and then they're looking the opposite way. Here's the other road they could take. And they see where the outcome that is, that that would lead them to. And if, whichever one they take, the further they go down that path, the further they get from the other one, for good or for bad. That's where they're at. That's the choice. And maybe that's where you are tonight, sitting in here. Maybe right tonight your life is at a crossroads. Because there's many times in our lives we come to many different crossroads, some bigger than others. And here's the world's answers to dealing with life's crossroads. This writer for the Huffington Post said this. A crossroads is about change. Choices must be made, and we continue in the course we're on or veer off onto something new. Let me just add this in before I get into the rest of what she says. That's something new. It always seems like it's going to be more exciting, more adventuresome, you know, more liberating than that path you're on, Right? That's the way it always seems so many times. But that was Eve's downfall. She made a choice. 
that looked more liberating, looked more exciting, looked like she was being denied, but the outcome of that choice was disaster for all of us once Adam got involved in it, right? So this writer went on and she said, here's her advice on keys to weathering life's crossroads. I'm not going to give you all of them, but one of them she said is, don't settle for the normal. You don't want to just have a normal life. And the second one, so you're trying to make a decision when you're at your crossroads, she says, trust your deepest feeling for guidance. When we don't follow our inner guidance, we feel a loss of power and energy. Oh, let me say this. The world following its deepest feeling for guidance is what has our society in the shape it's in right now. <laughs> if we don't understand that. And so should we trust our deepest feelings, even as Christians? The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can't even know our own hearts as saved people. In Ecclesiastes 9.3, Solomon wrote this. He said, the hearts of the son of men are full of evil. And listen to how he ended that. He says, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. People in the world, they would be offended, but the Bible says they're crazy. <laughs> their reality is all distorted. And Proverbs 28.26 says this. So we're saying, should you trust the innermost Impressions you're having in your feelings, in your heart, when you want to have guidance. Proverbs 28 says this, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But that's what the world does. So we get in these critical crossroads. Do we want to look at this situation and say, this is how it makes me feel. I feel like going this way or I feel like going that way and trust in our feelings, these impressions we have. Is our heart a trustworthy compass? There's this scene I read about in this movie, Disney movie, called Pocahontas that to me was eye-opening. Now, I've never seen the movie. I have no plans on seeing the movie. So what I'm going to tell you is what somebody wrote about the movie, okay? <laughs> There's a scene where Pocahontas is stuck when trying to make a decision, trying to decide whether she is going to accept a proposal for marriage from a steady partner who offers security but doesn't fulfill her desire for adventure. So how does she make this decision? Now this is what happens when you let your kids watch these movies and you're not watching what they're watching. Pocahontas, ah, it's a history movie. You know what happens in this movie? Old Pocahontas, she goes and sits beside an old wise talking tree named Grandmother Willow and who she regularly it says visits for spiritual counsel and advice. So she says to Grandmother Willow as she sits next to her, What is my path, Grandmother Willow? How do I know what is the right path for me? asked Pocahontas. And here's Grandmother Willow's answer. Just listen, child. All around you are spirits. If you listen, they will guide you. That's godly advice. Good godly advice for your children to be watching. So it went on to say Pocahontas closes her eyes and slips into a semi-trance. And after a few minutes, she gets a clue that eventually helped her make the decision. So your little child's watching Pocahontas and thinks, well, that's what I'm going to do next time i got to make a decision. So what can we learn from this? Well, I've kind of alluded to the first thing I think we can learn from this. If you want your child to pick up a demon or an evil spirit, let them watch Disney movies like this one. 
ones that they are acting like they're teaching history, but instead of just presenting the facts, they're inserting a worldview into that movie. It is totally contrary to what the Bible teaches. So hopefully we'll get into this in this spiritual warfare series, but in case you don't know it, I think most people in here do, maybe not everybody, there are strict prohibitions in the Old and New Testament about seeking guidance from spirits other than the Holy Spirit. It's the only spirit we're allowed to seek guidance from, right? So whether it's seances, trances like we just heard about, necromancy, that's contacting the dead, palm readers, wizards or witches, you know, just because it's presented in this fun and innocent way of a Disney movie doesn't make it any less deadly. Very deadly. And that's where America's at. And sinful. So if you've never heard that before, read Deuteronomy 18, verses 19 to 14. You can find all about it. But the second thing I think we learn, I think there's a little bit of truth to what old weeping willow tree, whatever her name, grandmother willow said. And that is there are spirits out there that are speaking to you and trying to give you guidance. There are. And Paul calls them in 1 Timothy 4.1, deceiving spirits and doctrines of devils that are coming our way trying to affect decisions that will determine the outcome of our lives. And they come to you as thoughts that you have. Is somehow times the way these spirits will speak, and we've talked about that in the spiritual warfare series, or from teachings from the Bible. Because Paul says Satan's ministers, they don't present themselves as the devil's ministers. They present themselves as ministers of righteousness, is what he says. They present gospel truths, supposedly. But they're leading you down a path that's contrary to what you've heard, the sound doctrine you've heard. So it'll seem reasonable. It'll seem exciting. It'll seem liberating. But do what Pocahontas did. Just close your eyes. And let these spirits or thoughts speak to you. And close your eyes to God's word. Close your eyes to the sound doctrine that you've been taught. Or close your eyes to the advice, especially younger people, of the godly people that God has put around you to help you. And see where you end up. It's not a safe way to be. So God has given us his word, teaching, and other Christians around here to help us. To help us keep off those bad paths. But in our text here, Lot came to a crossroads. And how did he come to that crossroads he was at? It was through circumstances. And a lot of them he didn't ask for. You know, he followed his uncle Abram down to Canaan. And we don't know why. I mean, it might have been his father died and Abraham took over taking care of him. It doesn't say. Or maybe he just saw this change in his uncle when he got this word from the Lord. And he hears his uncle talk about this revelation he had and this God that he's serving. And maybe Lot was like Ruth. Because I think Naomi talked about her God and his ways and all to Ruth, to where she's willing to follow. And so maybe Lot was like her. And like Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And thy God, my God. That might have been his way. But for whatever the reason, Lot was with Abraham. And when Abraham went down into Egypt, Lot followed him down there. And something happened a lot. We talked about this briefly last time. Something I think happened a lot when he was down in Egypt. He got a taste of the world down there. 
And Egypt has been known throughout the centuries as the breadbasket of the world. And why? Because of the rich soil that is around that Nile River. It's black soil. It is great farmland. And back then, that's everything. Water and crops and crops every year. That's what their life was all about. And you had that. You had everything. And Lot saw in Egypt that, hey, this place, as it was known, this is the symbol back then, Egypt was, of abundance and power. Kind of like America is today. We're the breadbasket of the world right now. We feed a lot of nations. And so Lot was given some of that abundance from down there to take home with him. Look in verse 5. So we're chapter 13, verse 5. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And it was that abundance in his taste of Egypt that brought him to his crossroads. So as we talked about last week, both of those guys had so much cattle and livestock, there wasn't enough grazing land and water for both of them to live on that hillside in the country of Bethel. So Lot's got to make a decision. He's at a crossroads. And listen, right at this point, you could say he's got the whole world in front of him. The whole world, and he's young enough, his whole life is right in front of him. And look what Abraham tells him in verse 9. We're saying the whole world's before him. That's what Abraham tells him. He said, is not the whole land before you? It's right before you there. You get to make a decision, Lot. A major decision that's going to affect the rest of his life. So he lived with his godly uncle, Abram, and had experienced his righteous life and his God. But he has also been down in Egypt, and he's experienced the world's wealth and prosperity. He's had both. So what does he do? It says in verse 10, it says what? At the beginning of that, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes. He's looking around. He's looking at his options. And he's thinking and making a decision. And he's probably thinking to himself, you know, Abraham and his God, they always have us on the move. And we have no certain grazing land. I don't know what's coming tomorrow. This faith journey stuff is wearing me out. There's a lot of insecurity in it. He might have been thinking that, right? And he might have been like, you know what, though? I saw a lot of security in the black soil of Egypt. I like that down there, that land of Egypt, the land of the Nile. Every year they have a bumper crop without fail. And so where do his eyes lock in on as he's thinking? Look what it says at the second part of verse 10. He lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's what he's saying. This place is even like the Garden of Eden, the Garden of the Lord. And like something else he'd seen, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest into Zoar, the well-watered plain of Jordan. Looks like the Garden of Eden to him as he looks down on that from that mountaintop. Green, lush, abundant in blessings. That's what he's locking in on as he's looking around. And it's not just a small section of that area that's well-watered. What does it say? That it was well-watered everywhere. Plenty of green pasture. So he's looking at that. He's like, there's no financial trials there. Right? No droughts to deal with. And Lot's looking at that. He gets to make the decision. He's looking his chops. He can't wait to get down there. That's what happens. But you know what? The writer here, I believe Moses wrote this. 
He lets us in on a little secret as he's writing this in the middle of this verse. And he lets us know that Lot might have made a bad choice. And where do we see that? Well, in the middle of that description of that well-watered plain that's filled with prosperity and apparent blessing is also a warning of what is to come. Because it says there in the middle of 10, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We get a little hint of what's coming. It's a well-watered plain. It looks green and lush. But before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it's that ominous sound you're hearing there that tells you Lot's decision seemed like a good one maybe, but it had a major flaw. The land looked good in the short term, but that is all Lot could see. That's all the further he could see with his eyes is just the short term. And he should have taken into account the future. Covetousness and the pleasures of this life will blind your spiritual vision, your long-term eternal vision. That's what happened to our friend Lot here. And Jesus warned us in Luke 12, 15. He said this. He said, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Take heed. It's a vision word. Take heed is. It means to see with your eyes. And he's telling us. And we have Lot here as an example to take heed, to keep our eyes open, to beware of what? Of covetousness. He's saying you need to be watching your life for any sign of covetousness. It's a warning. Take heed and beware, and beware means to be on guard. So how important is the century? Someone keeping guard in time of battle. He'd better be watching, having his eyes open, hadn't he? And he'd better be on guard. Why? Because lives are at stake. That's what we're talking about here. His own lives, that century, the lives of his family, and other people's lives. And that's what we're talking about, our eternal life. So he says, take heed and beware of covetousness. Your life doesn't consist in anything you have. That's not what life consists of. And he goes on to tell a story of a man that reached a crossroads, just like our friend Lot. He's prospering and he brings forth abundance and he reached a crossroads and here's what it said. He sees what all he has. It says, he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? Man, I got a lot. I'm at a crossroads. I got to decide what I'm going to do with all this. What am I going to do with my life? What shall I do? He says, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And we're saying covetousness will blind your spiritual vision. It blinded Lot's spiritual vision when he reached that crossroad. And this guy looks on at his abundance, and he's looking around at his options, and then he comes to a decision, and he says, this is what I'll do. That's what it says if you want to go back and read it. It's in Luke 12. This is what I'll do. But was that decision to bless others? Was it to further the kingdom of God? You know what his decision was? He's looking at all this and saying, it's all mine. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build bigger barns to hold all this. And he says, I will say to my soul, take my ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And like Lot, this guy is looking at the good it's going to give him for the short term. And you know what? Things looked good for Sodom and Gomorrah for a while, didn't they? In the short term. And they looked good for this certain rich man for a while. 
And things are looking really good in America for a while, maybe for years. Who knows? But you know what? There's a famous sermon that was preached by a man, R.G. Lee. And you know what the title of that sermon was? Payday's coming. And it came for all of them, and it's coming for America. Payday came for a lot. Payday came for Sodom. Payday came for this rich man. Because at the end of Luke 12, after he's saying, soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, guess what? God had a word to say about all that. Payday came. And God said unto him, you fool, this night thy soul shall be required of you. Then whose shall those things be which you have provided? And the world, you know what they would have said to that man? Man, you've done a great job planning for the future. You got everything. You got your house paid for, your stocks lined up, eat, drink, and be. Man, you have done the right thing. Call Dave Ramsey. He'll get you on there. He'll put you at the front of the call-in line, right? But God said, what to this man? He said, you're a fool. Not what the world would say. So here, what's the application for us? You're at a crossroads. You got this new job you're looking at. Thinking of expanding your business or you're just getting ready to enter the job force. You know, maybe you just graduated from high school or college. You're getting ready to work. And this new job you're considering, this new line of work, this expansion of your business, it is going to make you a lot of money. But is it going to keep you from your family? Is it going to keep you from church attendance? Is it going to keep you from having time in prayer and fellowship with the Lord? Or is it going to cause you to move where there is no church? This job you're thinking about. No church. Not a church that believes in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They have no holiness message. And they don't teach you that you should trust God fully for everything. Or it's going to cause you this job that's going to make you all this money to compromise your convictions. Because to do it, you're going to have to promote a product that violates what the word says. So let me ask you. We're talking about reaching crossroads. Are those the kind of things you consider when you're making decisions on what you're going to do with your work, your life, your family? I think it should be what you consider. I'm not picking on anybody in here. I don't have anybody in mind. This is what I was taught when I got in all this. And this is how I looked at decisions I made with job and, and everything I just mentioned. Because I had a guy offer me... You can come down and work with us, and we'll pay you more money, and we'll have church here in a hotel room. And I'm like, yeah, but you know what? It's going to keep me from being at these meetings I'm committed to in this church back in Columbus, Ohio. I said, I don't care how much money you pay me. And I needed money. I said, it's not worth it because my number one priority was my church and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not picking on anybody. That's all stuff I had to deal with myself. But that's how we should weigh our decisions in terms of eternal consequences, shouldn't we? And money is a big deal. And it's going to be a bigger deal when things get tight. So Jesus warned that life consists not in the abundance of the things one possesses. But true life, what does it consist of if it doesn't consist of that? It consists of our love to the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? That should be number one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul. That's the number one commandment. That's what life consists of. And anything that comes in between that relationship that we should have with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was it say, the cross before me? And where's the world supposed to be? Behind us. Put that behind you. 
It's not worth it. The cross before me, the world behind me. And so, and I think a major part of loving the Lord Jesus Christ is loving his church and being committed to it. It should be the new focus of your life. This is our family here. <laughs> Read the book of Acts. See how much time those people spent with each other. They didn't let their money get in the way. You know what they did? They sold their houses so that they could help other people out in that church. Those people in that community was everything. They built their lives around teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship. That's what you read. Read Acts. Don't believe me. And prayers. They prayed with each other, prayed for each other. They truly loved and cared for each other. So they made that their number one priority. So let me ask you, so are, am I saying if you take a job that makes a lot of money, that's wrong? Did I say that? I have to rewind. I don't think I said that. And I'm not implying that necessarily. But if you would, put something there in Genesis and turn back to 1 Timothy 6. So we're talking about Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness. And so 1 Timothy 6, 6, Paul writes this, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain, here's a certainty, we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Because they that will be rich, and that is, means they that desire to be rich. What happens to them? They fall into temptation and a snare. That's what happens to Lot, we'll see. His desire to be rich gave him a temptation, and he was snared. Temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in what? This is how serious it is. Destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. While some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. Think it's not serious? Why did Jesus say, take heed and beware of covetousness? That's how serious it is. We're talking about taking you away from the faith. And he says, they pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But he goes on in verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee that. Flee that desire for money and possessions and how much you can get. Is that not what it says? Flee that. Flee these things and follow after something else. Pursue this. Righteousness godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. That's what we should be pursuing in our lives. Verse 17, skip down to that. Paul says this. He says, charge them that are rich in the world to give all their money away as quick as they can. That's not what he says. He doesn't say it's a sin to be rich, but here's what he tells the rich people, that they be not high-minded and don't trust in those uncertain riches. But who should they trust in? The living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And here's what a rich person should be doing. Here's why that guy in Luke 12, he didn't get judged because he was rich. He got, got judged because he wasn't doing this. That they do good. That they be rich in good works. Ready to distribute. Willing to communicate. Fellowship. Koinonia. Share what they have. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. We talked about laying hold of those horns of the altar. That's how you do it. Use your money wisely. 
so that when you're dead, they'll receive you into eternal habitations. Luke writes a lot about money. You want to learn about money, study about money, read Luke. Talks about it a bunch in the Gospel of Luke. And in that Gospel, he talks to two rich men that reach crossroads in their lives. Has two people there. They made choices when they reached the crossroads that affected both of their eternal destinations. Two examples in in back-to-back chapters in Luke. So in Luke 18, we have the story there of the rich young ruler. In Mark's account, it says he comes running up to Jesus and kneels. He is anxious. Candidate for salvation. He says, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now listen, if there was anybody that was an evangelist, it was Jesus, wasn't he? And what was his answer to this man? What must I do to have everlasting life? Did he tell that man, man, I am so glad you want to be saved. I didn't think anybody was going to come up today to the altar call and give their life to the Lord. I was beginning to wonder, no decisions today. But listen, just put this prayer that I'm going to give you in your mouth and just mean it as best you can and you'll be set. Don't let anybody doubt. Don't ever doubt your salvation. Don't let anybody ever talk you out of it. Is that how Jesus answered that man? Good master, what must I do to have eternal life? That's the way today's evangelist would answer. What was his answer? He told him, he said, well, if you want life, you've got to keep the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your parents, your mother and father. Well, that'd kill half of us right there. But not this guy. He's hearing those things, and I think he had the biggest smile on his face. He's like, and here's what he told him. What you just said, Lord, I've done all of that from my youth up. That means to the present day, I've kept all of that law, done it all. But Jesus knew where his heart was, and he knew who his God was. And here's what he went on to say, because here's what a true evangelist will say. He's going to get to the heart. He's going to get this person to show you need to repent. He said, you still lack one thing, though. You've done all that. I'm going to take that smile off your face. You lack one thing. He says, you need to sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and you'll be free to come follow me. That's what he told that man. And you know what he did when he said that? He brought that guy to a crossroads. Crossroads he wasn't intending to have. But there he is. He's at a crossroads. He's got to make a choice. And he's like a lot. He's lifting up his eyes inside, and he's looking at all he has. Looking over his land, he's looking at his riches. And he's looking at what Jesus is asking him to do to get rid of all of them. Two different paths this guy's going to take. Brought to a crossroads by our Lord Jesus Christ. You want salvation? You got a decision to make, my friend. And it says in Luke's account, when he heard this, what Jesus said to him, it said he became very sorrowful. For he was very rich. In Mark's account, it tells us this. He was sad at this word, and he went away. He chose a path. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Came to a crossroads, had to choose one of two paths, and he chose the one that took him away. It says he went away. He went away from the Lord Jesus Christ. He went away from Jesus sorrowful, and what did he go to? Where did his path, this path of sorrow, where did that lead him to? Back to his riches. Wasn't willing to give them up. That's where that path led him. That wasn't Jesus' invitation. His invitation wasn't to go away sorrowful, was it? 
but to come, follow me. I heard Jake teach last night on calling. It's, it's an invitation. That was Jesus' calling to this man. That was his invitation. But it says in the Bible what? Many are called, but few are chosen. But that man made that decision. And compare that rich young ruler to another rich man who is just the next chapter over in chapter 19. And it says there, now behold, look at this guy. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And you know why he was rich? Because he was the chief tax collector. Now most tax collectors were pretty well off. But you know, they were probably the most despised outcast in Israel. The people absolutely hated those guys because the Romans would lease out the rights to individuals to collect taxes. And here's how it would work. Rome would say, all right, I'm giving you this area, and I'm just telling you, however you get it, I want you to give me $10,000 out of that area. And if you can get any more out of that area than that, buddy, it's all yours. But we want $10,000 from you. And so what those guys would do is they go in there and they could charge those people however much they could squeeze out of them. And so a lot of times they only need to give room 10,000, but they manage to squeeze out of these people by extortion 20,000. 10,000 is going in their pocket. And the people know that and they absolutely hate these guys. Because not only are they stealing our money, but they're helping out Rome. And here's the thing. He wasn't just a tax collector like Matthew. This dude is the chief tax collector, he's called. And that meant he was overseeing a number of other tax collectors. And he's skimming from their profits. And he also would have been the one that would have determined how much custom they can charge on these goods going back and forth. This guy is raking it in. And he would be the equivalent of a mafia boss. That's about what it'd be like, the equivalent of today. He's getting a huge part of the take. So he's rich like the rich young ruler, except unlike him, this guy is a despised outcast, Zacchaeus. I thought this was interesting, the Jewish Mishnah. So you're not supposed to lie, it's part of the law, but guess what? It was permissible to lie to tax collectors to protect your property. That's the one exception they would make. I thought that was interesting. But you know what? Jesus brought this guy, Zacchaeus, to a crossroads too. He's walking by, and that little short man wants to see him, and he's climbed up in that sycamore tree. And when Jesus sees him, he says what to him? He says, Zacchaeus, hurry up, make haste, and come down, for today I must stay in your house. And Zacchaeus made a choice. So he's looking at his riches, and he's looking down at Jesus. The same thing the rich young ruler did. They both had crossroads. But here's the difference. Zacchaeus had been brought to repentance by the Spirit of God, I believe. He'd seen the wickedness of his heart, the covetousness, how sinful he was, and his great need of forgiveness. You know, you go back and you read Luke 15. He's dining with these people. The Pharisees are on their case. But he's saying, this man's different here. He's holy, but he is not self-righteous. He treats us nice. He comes and eats with us. And he sees that this Lord is here. This loving Lord is willing to meet his need. He's willing to forgive him of his great sin. He knew he was a sinner and wicked and covetous. And that's the difference. And he hears that words of Jesus, I want to come to your house today. And he was thrilled. Zacchaeus was thrilled. My 
my Lord, he's thinking. He wants to be reconciled to me, an outcast, a sinner. He wants to come dine with me, wants to come to my house. I know what this man is. Maybe he just thought he was a prophet, but he knew he was a great person. Wants to come to my house. None of the great religious people in our land want to come to my house. They want to burn it down. I'm going to be forgiven and restored today is what he's thinking. Back in fellowship with God. And the Bible said when Jesus said that to him, that he was going to come to his house, it says he received him joyfully. And that's what happens when you receive the Lord and you realize how wicked you are. You should be receiving him joyfully. And it should maintain that. And so to show how deep his repentance was and how sincere it was, he said to him, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And you're like, well, he only gave half. The rich young ruler had to give all of it. Listen, Zacchaeus would have gladly given it all. You know what the thing was, though? He still had some debts to pay. So he couldn't give it all. He didn't carry to giving it all to the poor because he went on to say after that, if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'll restore fourfold. That's what he's doing with the other half. So in other words, he's telling the Lord Jesus Christ, everything I have is at your disposal. And that's what a saved person, that's when you come to the Lord, that's the way it is. He's got it all. He's got your wallet. He's got everything. You know, when they used to baptize the Roman soldiers, they would baptize everything, but they keep their hand up with their sword in there because they weren't going to give them that. And some people get baptized, they got to have their wallet up in their hand and we'll dunk everything, but now I'm holding on to this though. But no, you got to give it all to the Lord. That's what salvation has. And Jesus said this to that man. He says, today, so we talked about salvation on Sunday, and he's saying this to the wee little Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. It doesn't matter how wicked you are. He's come to seek and save you. You just got to repent. That's the condition. And what a contrast between Zacchaeus and that rich young ruler. Both were rich men. Both got brought to the crossroad. And you know what? They both got brought to the same crossroads. Here they are. One path leads to life and salvation and a walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the one path. And the other led to a selfish life, a covetous life. Going to do what I want to do. And one chose one path and one chose the other. And they were both rich men. And that was the crossroads for them. And let me ask you, are you at a crossroads tonight in your spiritual journey with the Lord? Your spiritual life today? Because there's many crossroads that we face in our Christian life. You know, it can be, this crossroad is, how am I going to deal with this person? This person has just done me wrong. And it's brought me to a crossroads because I want to hate him. I don't want to pray for him. But here's the Lord saying, if you want to be forgiven, you need to forgive them. You need to pray for those that do you harm. Pray for their good. Do them good. But that's a crossroad we come to a lot of times, isn't it? And you're thinking, I don't want to pray for him. Not somebody that hurt me that deep. Or sometimes the crossroad is just a simple, am I going to trust God to heal me supernaturally by his Holy Spirit? Or am I going another way? You reach that crossroad. Or somebody at school, at work. You know, if I start living my Christian convictions, you're at that crossroad. I know I'm going to be persecuted and hated. I'm not going to be the cool guy at the water cooler anymore. Or that person everybody likes at school. 
but I'm convicted. God's dealing with me about hiding my light and not sharing the gospel with others. I'm at a crossroad, and I'm wrestling with that. Maybe that's the crossroad you're at. I don't know. Or maybe you're somebody that just, I love to gossip, and I love to hear any news I can, but now I'm convicted, and God has brought me to that crossroad and says, you need to give that up, or you are going to feel the pain of chastisement. Maybe that's your crossroad. Or maybe it's, I know I'm not a Christian. Sitting here, any of us, God's been dealing with me, and I've got this heavy burden of sin every day. I wake up knowing if I die, I'll be in hell. No peace. And you're at that crossroad tonight. That could be you. And you say, man, I just feel like I'm being pulled on these two paths. I got, I'm being almost torn in half. So I want to feel the peace and joy of knowing I'm restored and back right with God and not under his wrath anymore. But man, I'm afraid of what people will think. On this hand, I'm afraid of what they'll think. And I think I'm just not sure there's some sins I want to give up. Maybe that's the crossroad you're at. So A.B. Earl, he's a very gifted and anointed evangelist. And he had this happen to him. It's a true story. So he wrote that he was in a hotel lobby in Philadelphia, and he's waiting for this friend to meet him there. And as he's waiting for his friend to come, he sees this guy over here uttering all these blasphemous words about God. He recognizes him. And the man happens to look over and notices A.B. Earl. And he calls out his name, Reverend Earl, and goes over to him, walks over to him. And he asks him, he says, do you remember holding meetings in New York City 15 years ago? And he asked, do you remember that there was a young man there on the edge of the front seat of his front seat who was very anxious about his soul? And A.B. Earl says, well, I remember those meetings, he said, but I don't remember the young man. I don't remember what you're talking about. And the man answered him, and he said, I am that young man. And I was very anxious to become a Christian. But you bade us goodbye and left. That was his last meeting that night, is what he meant. You bade us goodbye and left. And he said, that night I went home. And I looked the matter all over and said, this is what the man said, if I become a Christian, I must give up the drinking saloons and card tables. What did I better do? He's at a crossroads at his house that night. And he said, I finally said, I will not become a Christian. Holy Spirit, leave me. That's what that man said. And the man says, and he did leave me. From that time, I have perfectly hated God. For 15 years, I have not had a desire to become a Christian. He says, I'm a merchant purchasing goods, and now I am going on with my business. Yet I know when I get through, hell is my portion. And A.B. Earl, if you read about that man, it tore him up to hear that man said that. And he said, my dear sir, don't say it even if you think so. You hurt my feelings. He's looking at this guy. He says, a man of you not more than 40 years old? going to perdition, hating God. And the man looked at him. He says, well, I'm, I don't blame you for that, sir. And Earl said he was so pained about what that man told him. He tried for two hours to talk to the man about his soul with no success. And he said, finally, he just had to go with his friend. And he said he grabbed the man's hands. And he said, I must go, but I want you to promise me that tonight at 10 o'clock when you get home, you'll kneel in your closet and I'll be in mine in prayer for you. 
I'll be praying for you, and I want you to go home tonight and pray in your closet. And the man replied, I will not. I will not bow my knees to God. I know better. I hate God. That was his answer. And A.B. Earl let go of his hand, and as he walked down the street, he said he thought to himself, Oh, I wish I'd have stayed one more night that he might have decided differently. And he goes on to quote a poem, a saying of a man that said, There's an invisible line when God's dealing with a person. We don't know where that is, but there comes a time when you cross over that line and God's done dealing with you. says in Proverbs, he that being often reproved and hardens his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Now, where that point is, I don't know. Only God knows. But there's no safety in resisting. He that being often reproved, I don't know how many times that is, but hardens his neck. It's the picture of someone saying, I don't want to hear it. No, another time. Shall suddenly be destroyed, Proverbs says, and that without remedy. You know what a remedy is? It's what you take to get healed. And he's saying, the remedy's all over with. The day of grace is gone. And so are you at that crossroads tonight? Has God's Spirit been speaking to you? Has the Lord been calling you to forsake your sins and come follow Him? And He says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Because you don't know if He'll speak to you again. You may live to be 80, like this guy did. And it may be all over. But here's the thing. If he is dealing with you, with, with you, the promise that he'll receive you is in the fact that he's dealing with you. That's what you should, you should take courage in that. If he's dealing with your heart, you can come to him and know he'll accept you. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. But you don't know, none of us in here, backslidden, or never known the Lord, we, one promise we don't have, and we all know this, is what? Tomorrow. And that's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, Behold, check this out, look at this, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's the only time you have that you know of. Now. We don't have tomorrow. So maybe you're backslidden. In here, maybe you put on a good face when you come to church, but in your heart, you know things just aren't right, and you'd be afraid to die tonight. Nobody else knows it, but you know it. You know the way you're living. You're living like you've lost. You're lost. You've lost the joy of your salvation. It's not there anymore because your relationship with the Lord's not right. You're not praying, and you think, man, why bother? Give me one second. We're not going to finish this sermon. My last page of notes is right here. So the prophet Jeremiah spoke to God's people in Jerusalem. And they were in a backslidden condition. They were getting ready to be judged. But God was still speaking to them through the prophet Jeremiah. And this is what he said, Jeremiah 6.16. He says, Thus saith the Lord. And we're talking about being at a crossroads. Stand you in the ways and see. Stand in the crossroads, that's what in the ways means, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. And Jeremiah is telling these backslidden Israel, Jerusalem, he says, stand in the crossroads and look. Look where that path you're on, where that's going to end up taking you. Look and see. You don't want that path. 
ask for the old paths, the good way. God will give it to you. And when he does, he says, he'll put your feet on that path again. He says, begin to walk therein and you'll find rest for your souls. Because when you're not on that path and you're on that one, there is no rest. You know something inside of you is not right. So if we go back to Genesis 13, I'm going to look at a little something else here with Mr. Lot. So we see here, well, Lot's choice of the well-watered plains. And it, like I said before, it looks like the best choice in the short term. And I'm sure that his herdmen and cattle were happy and prospering for a while. But here's what happened. By the choice he made, there was a downward spiral for the rest of his life. So look in Genesis 13, 11 and 12. He made his choice. Verse 11, Genesis 13, 11. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. And Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and it says Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain. And look what it says at the end of verse 12. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. So that's where his troubles began. And it went downhill from there because Lot went from having his tents near Sodom. Then look over in chapter 14 and verse 12, next chapter over. So when the kings come and they invade Sodom and take everyone from there, it says in verse 12, they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who now what? Dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So he went from having his pit tents pitched towards Sodom, and now he's living in Sodom. And when you go back and read chapter 19, further on, when the angels come to rescue Lot, when they find him, you know where it says he was at? He's sitting in the gates of Sodom. Now he's a respected elder. So he went from living near Sodom to dwelling in Sodom to having a position of influence in Sodom. And where did all that get him in the end? Making his way towards Sodom. It might have prospered him in the short term. He lost everything. And that's what we need to think about. You get to that crossroads, where is that decision going to end you up at? He lost everything. He lost all the wealth and possessions that he so desperately wanted to keep. He lost his wife, a pillar of salt. His sons-in-laws wouldn't come with him, and his two daughters commit incest with him and produce two of the enemies of Israel, Ammon and Moab. So all Lot really escaped with was his own soul. He was saved as if by fire. And you know what? It all goes back to that faithful decision when he was at that crossroads. That's when it all started. He decided, I'm going to yoke myself up with some unbelievers, and it was a progressive downfall from there for him. And why would he want to live with those people? So we're looking at Genesis 13, 13. Why would Lot want to live with those people? Verse 13, he would have known this, but the men of Sodom were what? Wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And yet Lot, a righteous man, chose to live with those people. And you know what it says about that in 1 Peter? It says, for that righteous man, speaking of Lot, dwelling among them in seeing and hearing. He's seeing and hearing what these sodomites are doing. Seeing and hearing, it says he vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. 
That's not much of a blessing. All because of that decision that, man, I think I can do a whole lot better down there in that well-watered plain. No trials down there. Looks like the land of Egypt. Looks like the Garden of Eden. Praise the Lord. No, I wouldn't praise the Lord. It's God's grace and mercy got him out of there. Had to drag him out of there and his family. So let me say, if you're thinking about marrying or dating a girl, we talked about this, that you just know is not a Christian in name, and just a name only, you better have better spiritual vision than Lot did. Somebody in here told me they had a lot of friends that they know that they're thinking, yeah, I'll marry this girl. I know she doesn't believe like I do. I know she's probably not right, but I'm going to marry her and everything will work out. And it's a, it's a brother in there. He says, I know these people. Nothing's worked out right for them. It's been a total nightmare for them. For them to try to live their Christianity now. And you do that, don't have any better vision than Lot than like him, you may lose all. So you've got to think, young people thinking about getting married, and so maybe you're not right with God now, but if you decide to get right and you marry somebody that never wants to get right or was right, ever wants to be right, that can be a major obstacle to your Christianity from here on out. You really need to think about that. Or even worse, they may keep you from ever getting right with God. Just drag you away from the Lord and you never find your way back because of that one decision. And I'm telling you, look, just believe me, it's better to live with an aching heart single than to live with somebody that compromises you and brings you to face an eternal hell. Better to live with that heart aching because you couldn't find the right person. So we turn to one last place. Turn to 2 Corinthians 6. It's common, but let's read it. Talking about the crossroads, 2 Corinthians 6. Beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? Lot should have known that. What communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part is he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What a promise he gives us. So he's saying, why do you, having that promise, want to hook up with an unbeliever as a mate? And he says in verse 17, because of that, wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and don't touch the unclean thing. And God says, I will receive you and I'll be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And he goes on and it should have, there shouldn't be a period there in a new chapter. It goes on in chapter 7, 1. And he says, having therefore those great promises that God just gave of being your father, of walking with you, of us being his children. He says, having those promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. That's what we should be following after. Amen? We really should. So what's the crossroads you're, you're facing in your spiritual journey tonight? 
Is it one that involves finances? We talked about that earlier. Is it one that involves personal relationship? Is it a decision on whom you want to marry? Or is it the major decision, the biggest crossroads any of us will ever come to, to give your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, the most important crossroads we'll ever face? And I'd say if you're there tonight, if you're at that crossroads, ask God to give you the grace to make the right choice and then make a decision for the Lord. Joshua wrote this. He told the people this. He says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve you the Lord. And if it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day. You're at a crossroads. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But let's all say what Joshua said. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? Amen. I'd encourage all of us in the name of Jesus <laughs> that we'll determine from this night on that we and our households will serve the Lord. Amen? Amen. Because he is worthy. He is worthy. And we'll see God move in our midst. I really believe we will. But we have got to get back to where we are wholly following him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, I just ask, Lord, if anyone here is at a crossroads tonight, Lord, I just ask that you'll tenderly draw them by your Holy Spirit and draw them to you, that just speak to their heart, Lord, just cause them by your grace to just make that decision to serve and follow you wholly. And I just ask, Father, you'll just deliver all of us from covetousness, from serving that God of mammon and pleasure, and that we can just give our lives to you wholly, Lord, and we can see you move in our midst here, Lord. We can see the gifts operate. We can see your power demonstrated to meet the many needs that we have here. And that you will restore, Lord, the joy of our salvation. And that comes from a heart that is wholly following you. And I just thank you, Father. I just believe that that is going to happen in this church. That you will do that for us. You will restore the joy of our salvation and the joy in our praise and our joy in communion with you that you are our Lord and Savior. Amen. I just thank you that you'll do that for us tonight and move on our hearts in that way and cause us to make the right decisions when we reach those crossroads. And I thank you that you'll do that for us here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.